live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Gru, who's producing the show today, it's going to be one of those days. I can just tell already. First, the show hasn't even started. One of the first texts out of the box. Okay, so opening opening day was yesterday. We did the opening day broadcast in the morning. I, I was in the dugout and then went out, did my show for 30 minutes, and I went back in, watched the game. Just a great game. Here's the first text. I think I saw Jeff Wagner walking in the concourse. Blue jeans, yes, that's true. Jacket, that's true. Carrying a beer, yes, that's true as well. It was opening day. No brewer's gear on. Okay, well, (laughs) here's the thing. No brewer's gear on. What in the world could you have been looking at? If you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. Um, actually, I, I posted a picture of this. This was me at Miller Park yesterday morning at 8 o'clock. Um, and my note said, my 21st consecutive Brewers opening day with WTMJ. I admit there's some parts of the job that never get old. That is true. But that's how I was dressed yesterday. You can check out that picture. And that's, that is actually one of my very favorite articles of Brewers gear. But yes, that, that big thing. That big thing on the left side of, of that sweatshirt I'm wearing, that is the Brewers logo. So that was that was the Brewers gear that I happened to have on. And matter of fact, if you want to see some of the stuff that went on in the dugout and actually at opening day, if you go to WTMJ.com, we had a number of people that were taking photographs. And there's a big photo gallery, including several with some of the interviews we were doing from the dugout. And, and yes, you can see me. Wearing that Brewers gear. No, I didn't change out of that sweatshirt, you know, when I went into the game. So it, it was just an absolutely tremendous time. I also sent out another tweet that has a clip from my favorite interview of the morning. And I, I that my, my note said, I mean, I enjoy almost everything about opening day, but my favorite part is and always seems to be having the opportunity to chat with Mark Gattinazio and Bob Euchre. They are both incredible class acts. And I have a link to the conversation we had. And, again, you can check it all out. It's um, on my Twitter feed, at Jeff Wagner 620 together with, well, a head start on a number of the things that we are going to talk about today. Let us begin. In your life, professionally or personally, my guess is that you have occasionally run into people that are very, very talented, very, very good at what it is that they do, except the fact that they are complete and total jerks. And after a while, the fact that they are just such complete and total buttheads, that catches up to them. And I always use the phrase, well, when when you wonder why somebody has flamed out and lost a job or something, sometimes it's because wasn't because they weren't talented. It was just because they butt-headed their way out of the particular job. Actually, there's another phrase I use, but we'll say butt-headed on on the radio. In other words, they just it wasn't worth the effort. They were just they were talented, but it was just too much trouble. They were too disruptive a force. And that describes 
guy named Keith Olbermann. Now, perhaps you are familiar with Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann ha- has been a- around in the public eye for a couple decades. He he started out at ESPN and was one of the anchors at ESPN on Sports Center and a commentator. And he was very very talented, and but unfortunately a, a very difficult personality. And after a while, the relationship between him and ESPN ended. It crashed and burned. They dumped him. So then what happened is he ended up on MSNBC. And he had, as you might recall, he had a – the show was called Countdown. And he was he, – he's a, he's a big lefty. But I, I don't say that. That's not – that's not necessarily what makes him controversial. What makes him controversial is he doesn't have that filter that most people have. And he's, he's again, he does stuff. He's very difficult. He ended up on MSNBC, and he, he did his political commentary show, and he, he crashed and burned on that, and they moved on. Then he ended up on the Al Jazeera Al Gore Network Current, and he had a show on there for a while. And that kind of bombed out. And, and again, it's not because he's tal- not talented. It's because he's a difficult personality and he butts heads. And sooner or later, he does something which gets him in so much trouble that the people decide he's just not worth it. And then to the surprise of many people, given the way his first ESPN gig ended, a couple of years ago, ESPN brought him back. And now he's one of the anchors on, on one of their sports center programs. And he does commentary and he does some play-by-play, I think, as well. Well, he is now back in the news. Here is what he did. Now, let me walk you through this. There's a 22-year-old guy in Mississippi who is a hunter. All right, that's, that's as are many people in Mississippi, they are hunters. The hunting season for turkeys, bear with me here. The hunting season for turkeys opened up on March 15th. All right, so this 22-year-old guy, his name is um, Hunter Waltman, all right? Um, so he, he's, he's out turkey hunting. And what he does, long story short, is he ends up shooting this, this white turkey. All right. There was this white turkey on his property, and apparently, you don't. There, these these white turkeys are extremely rare. You don't see them in Mississippi. And the event, you know, he goes out, he hunts them, he shoots them. The local newspaper, and I have the story, the Mississippi Clarion Ledger. You know, the the outdoor reporter writes a story, and they show a picture of the guy holding this white turkey that he had legally shot. And so there's no issue at all with that, that he had legally shot. And they run a story, and he talks about, you know, how how it was that he was he was able to find the turkey and, you know, what he did, and they talk about his hunting methods and things like that. All right, so that's the nature of the story. It's no different than stories that I don't probably are run in in every Wisconsin paper come you know deer hunting season if if somebody gets a big buck or something like that you know they go out and they say oh this is what the hunter did and the hunter is posing with the, the deer so th- this isn't it's not like the guy was on some safari that he paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for for the right to shoot um, some rare elephant he shot this turkey all right now the turkey is unique but he shot it all right so into this wades Keith Olbermann Keith Olbermann sends out a tweet, and this is what the tweet says, and I'm quoting. It be rare and beautiful, so me should kill it. This pea-brained scumbag identifies himself as Hunter Waltman, and we should do our best to make sure the rest of his life is a living hell. 
and the nitwit clown who wrote this fawning piece. That's the story that the sporting, you know, the outdoor reporter wrote in the, the newspaper. The nitwit clown who wrote the fawning piece should be fired. All right, so the hunter who shot the turkey, Oberman calls him a pea-brained scumbag, and we, being all the people that follow Keith Olbermann on Twitter, should do their best to make sure the rest of his life is a living hell. And then the reporter who wrote the story, nitwit clown who wrote this fawning piece, should be fired. Well, predictably, after Oberman sends this out, and he, he's got all these different followers and things like that, the, the guy, the 22-year-old hunter, um, starts getting all sorts of nasty response. Um, you know, the guy says, you know, to tell you the truth, this seemed like a, a threat to me. Make my life a living hell? That seems like a threat to me. He says that, you know, nobody's directly threatened him, but he's received lots of verbal attacks after this tweet. So he goes public and he says, what's this guy doing so singling me out? It's not like I did anything illegal. I shot the turkey. It's turkey hunting season. All right. After the immediate blowback, Olbermann then deletes the tweet says, I am an opponent of trophy hunting and remain so, but nobody should feel threatened. That was anything but my intent. Huh. I didn't intend to make think people should threaten him, even though I said we need to do our best to make sure the rest of this guy's life is a living hell. Anyhow, he says, I re- apologize to Mr. Waltman for this tweet and, and moves on. Number of people say this aren't is not good enough. A number of people say, okay, here's just another one of these examples of where this guy is out of control, and you know maybe ESPN needs to step in. Other people say, well, what did Oldman say that was that wrong? I mean, you know, he's a, an opponent of trophy hunting. Um, maybe this guy who did shoot the turkey is in fact a quote unquote pea brain scumbag. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did Oldman cross a line? here with this particular text from the perspective of hunting should the guy have gone out and felt comfortable in shooting this particular rare but not protected turkey who's wrong here if anybody 414-799-1620 that is the acunet mortgage talk and text line we discuss in just a moment if you're on the line please hold on this is jeff wagner back to take your calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner so glad to have you with us. Let's start with Steve in Port Washington. Steve, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? Real well, thank you. Okay, did Olbermann cross the line here? You know, I don't think so. I think that everybody has the freedom to free speech and to say what they want. The fact that he deleted his tweet, apologized, I don't think they should step in. He should lose his job for it. I think I think we all want everybody's head. You know, as soon as they say, say something we don't agree with, we want to go and say, oh, he needs to lose his job. I don't think that's that's the right, you know. Should there be any discipline for him at all? Should ESPN do anything to a guy who is, you know, one of their featured performers who sends something like this out? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think that, you know. I, I, again, I think that we're all free to say what we want. I don't hmm. think it really damaged uh, the hunter here. I think, yeah, maybe there's a lot of people that, you know, had an outrage, but I think they're just taking a, a hardline stance on it, you know. Well, okay, thanks for call. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, I mean, here, here's, here, here's the thing. When you have somebody like, like a Keith Olbermann that lashes out in an intensely personal fashion, in this case against a, a 22-year-old guy 
who, who it's not like he's offering sports commentary. It's not like Keith Olbermann is denouncing Robert Kraft for going to a massage parlor or anything like this. This is this is a guy who goes out hunting. And then there's a reporter that writes a story. And like I say, you see these stories all the time when it comes to, you know, during the hunting season and things like that. Oh, look at the bird this guy got. Look at the deer the person got. I, I guess I think Oberman was way, way, way out of line. And identifying some 22-year-old guy who is just completely and totally removed from the world of sports and calling him a pea-brained scumbag and telling his followers that we need to make this guy's life a living hell. Does Olbermann have a right to do it? Well, well, sure. I mean, he, he, he does. He does. But that doesn't mean that you do stuff without consequences. Now, I, I don't know. Does ESPN fire the guy? Well, they, you know, they've been down that route before with Keith Olbermann. But at the very least, I think this is one where there needs to be some degree of discipline that is administered because he's a reflection of ESPN. And Lord knows ESPN's had enough problems with people getting involved in the political tweets and all. And then, I mean, Olbermann, the, the, the reporter, the reporter, the outdoors reporter for this Mississippi newspaper who writes the story, which my guess is it's his job. You know, what does Olbermann say to him? The nitwit clown who wrote this fawning piece should be fired. Okay, that that's that's the guy that should be fired. I mean, at some point in time, you wonder, does ESPN have any sort of standards at all? And again, I'm not calling necessarily for him to be fired for this, but here you have a major sports network personality who is using his fame he's currently employed by espn to talk about a 22 year old private citizen and suggest we should make his life a living hell well okay it's not like he's saying okay go after go after mitch mcconnell make make his life a living hell go after so and so all right that's Maybe that's fair game. But here you just have this private citizen who's singled out for, again, doing the hunting thing. Now, don't get me wrong here. I am not a hunter. All right. I'm not a hunter. I respect people who do it. I could not do it myself. I I just I couldn't. And I'm sorry if that it's just it's not in it for me. We have all these where I live. It's almost like a nature preserve. We have this group of like seven, eight, nine, ten turkeys that just roam roam the neighborhood. And I, it's amazing to me that they've been able to survive the winter. Uh, could could I go out and shoot one of those turkeys? Absolutely not. I just I could not do it. I think they're just beautiful animals, even though be- you know beautiful birds, even though you know they can they can be a little bit nasty if you get too close to them. Mike and Franklin. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mike. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Thanks Mike. for taking my call. As yes, usual. sir. Um, I, I just wanted to just touch base real quick about this. Um, first and foremost, Keith Olbermann is a habitual offender of these types of things where he sort of uses his platform that's, you know, sort of like, I suppose, maybe a judge where it's based on objectivity. Um, and he, and he sort of, um, uses it to sort of propel his political affiliations. Right. Um, in 2012 or 13, uh, several years ago, he was fired from one of the network news um, channels for donating, I believe, to the DNC, which was in uh, which was yeah, that was MSNBC. Fired. Yeah, he had made okay. a number. He had made political contributions to a couple can- Democratic candidates right sure. before an election. I think that's what he did. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, and here he is again. And, you know, look, he's, it, this is sort of like I was telling, um, I was telling your producer. This is sort of like I was, I sort of compared this to a situation with a same-sex couple and a flag in Oak Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of the good and the bad of the First Amendment rearing its ugly head. Yeah. Um, can you discipline Keith Olbermann for this? On the books, I really don't think you can. Now, 20 years ago, uh, his employer, if they had an issue with it, they would have found another reason to have, you know, let him go or whatever. But, I mean, we don't live in that, you know, day and age anymore. No, so, but I, at the same I mean, thanks for calling, Mike. At, at the same sure. time, no, I mean, the, the first, I mean, let's speak, the First Amendment deals with, you know, government restricting the right of free speech. There, there's nothing that says private employers can't have, have various standards. And I guess it's one thing for me if Oberman wants to come out and he wants to denounce trophy hunting. I, I get that. Why would anybody shoot this beautiful bird? I think where where this this particularly crossed the line is, is first of all, um, saying we, we want to do our best to make sure the rest of his life is a living hell. I mean, what's what? What is that if it is not implying a threat? I mean, seriously. And then the guy that writes the story, who really this is a reporter, it seems to me, who's just doing his job. It's an outdoor reporter. You call him a nitwit, and you demand that he should be fired. The First Amendment is government restricting people's right to speak. I'm not saying that, but I, I will tell you, and this is a lesson that. You have, if you do what I do for a living, you have in the back and the front of your mind on a daily basis that if you go too far, um, if you threaten, if you do, if you go too far, however you want to define too far, you, you know that you're going to get called into a meeting and there could be some degree of accountability ranging from, all right, we need a public apology, we need a suspension to we need a firing. That, that's where the line is. And I, I guess I found this interesting because first of all, even though I am not a hunter, and even though I understand what Olbermann's talking about when he says, I don't get trophy hunting, I don't approve of this type of stuff, it's one thing to say, I don't approve of trophy hunting. It's another thing to say to some 22-year-old guy who's featured in a local newspaper, let's make his life a living hell. Will anything happen to Keith Olbermann? Probably not. Probably not, because that's the way ESPN rolls nowadays. But it's something to remember. All right, in just a couple minutes, it is the story I have been waiting all day to discuss with you. It's a two-year-old child, his parents, doctors, and police officers. If you want to get a head start on it, have a link to one of the many stories about this on my Twitter account. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. This is, today's show is going to be a largely politics-free zone, except right after the 1 o'clock news. We, we have not had an opportunity to talk to Wisconsin Senior Senator Ron Johnson for a while, and we're going to be checking in with the Senator. I want to talk to him about the Mueller report and about the latest battles on health care. And during the news, you just heard reports that the President is thre- threatening to close the southern border and Venezuela is in a mess. So I, I thought it would be appropriate, and Senator Johnson had some time, and we'll talk to him um, right after the 1 o'clock news. All right, here is the story. And, and this this comes from Chandler, Arizona. It happened a couple weeks ago. But I, I want to... I want to give you a picture of this, and I'm t- I want to tell you where I'm going with this. Once I, I share the facts with you, my question is going to be who's right and who's wrong. Okay, here's the deal. It goes back a couple weeks. It goes back to February 25th. About 5 o'clock at night, a woman takes her son to one of these you know, urgent care clinics. 
Um, the doctor, she said, my son is sick, et cetera, et cetera. The doctor takes the boy's temperature. The boy is two years old. So we're talking about a two-year-old child. Takes the two-year-old's temperature and finds the temperature is above 105 degrees. All right, so alarm bells are, are going off. The doctor at the urgent care clinic then consults with staff at two area hospitals. He says, I have this, this child here who's running 105 fever. And the doctor says, look, we, we think that, that this child may have a life-threatening illness. Um, and, and what they thought is he, he might have, he might have a, a rare but life-threatening virus. So anyhow, the, so the doctor, urgent care clinic says, look, this is what I've got. They call two area hospitals, and the, the hospitals say, well, you know, what the mother should do is bring the kid into the emergency room as soon as possible because the tests that they want to run to see what's going on with the kid, they can't do it at the urgent care clinic. So they, they say, the doctor says, you got to take your child to an emergency room. They're afraid the kid has meningitis, which would be, be a life-threatening illness. The mother says to the, the doctor at the urgent care, no. She says, well, first of all, our kids aren't vaccinated, and I'm afraid that if I take him to the emergency room, the doctors there are going to report um, her to the emergency, to authorities because they're not vaccinated. And then she says her husband, he's in favor of vaccinations. He will be mad at her. All right. Now, this is kind of bizarre because in Arizona, parents can opt out of vaccinations. But anyhow, that's what she says. I, my, I, the kids aren't vaccinated, and I'm afraid if I take my two-year-old who's got 105 fever in, my husband will be mad at me. All right. After being assured that she wouldn't get reported to authorities, she relented. She said, okay, all right, I, I'm fine. I'll, I'll go to this this hospital. All right, so the doctor then calls the emergency room and says, okay, this lady is coming in. The kid's got 105-degree temperature. Will, will you let me know, you know, when they, they get there? Well, okay, the mom never shows up. Instead, she goes she goes home. Um, she calls the, the clinic. She calls the, the urgent care thing and says, well, I decided I wasn't going to go to emergency room. What I did is I bought a thermometer on the way home, stopped at the drugstore, and I, I think my, my son's temperature is dropping a, a little bit. And I, I think he's getting a little bit better since we left the, the clinic. The doctor says, look, <laughs> you, you really need to take this child to the emergency room to make sure that he's recovering. At which point in time, she goes back to this vaccination thing and says, well, you know, what if I go in there? Can I lie about him being vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera? The doctor says, no, look, this could be a life-threatening thing. you got to get into this emergency room so the kid could be tested. All right. And, and apparently they have a couple phone calls back and forth. And finally, she says, I, I'm not going to. Sorry, I'm, I'm not going to take him in. Um, I'm not. We're just going to ride with this. At which point in time, he then calls, this is the urgent care doc, he calls the Arizona Department of Child Safety. Um, and he, he says, look, uh, I mean, here's here's what's going on. I, I just, I don't, I think this child might have meningitis. This is the circumstance. And now she's not answering my calls. So child safety, child protective services, they call the local cops, the Chandler Police Department. I know this gets a little complicated. And they say, can you go by? It's now 1030 at night. So we're five, six hours after this initial thing. And the child welfare people say to the cops, 
can you swing by these people's house and and just do a do a welfare check see what's going on here we want to make sure the kid you know isn't dead so the officers go over they knock on the door they can hear children coughing inside nobody answers um then so they call the house and somebody answers inside the house um and they say well no we're not going to let you in but you know we think the kids better that the child's fever has broken but you're not now they're talking to the dad the dad says no you know we're not going to let you in you know please leave at which point they say well Lona, we're we're here on a child welfare check you got to let us in we've been told that you know we're we have to check this out the dad says nope i i'm not going to do that so the cops go back they tell child welfare they're not letting them in. They say the kid is better, but they're, he's refusing to let us in. At which point in time, the child welfare people get, wake up a judge. So now we're looking like at midnight, and they wake up a judge, and they get an order allowing them to temporarily take custody of the two-year-old to make sure he's getting emergency medical treatment. Um, that point in time, with this court order, they go back to the house. They again say, hey, look, here we're here. You know, we, we've got this court order that says that we're supposed to take this child into custody to make sure he gets emergency medical treatment. Please open up. The dad says, no, he's not going to be forced to take his child to the hospital and wind up with a $3,000 bill. I'm not coming out. You can't have the kid. The police say, we're, we're coming in. You know, this is an emergency situation. We've got this court order. We're coming in. If If you don't come out, he says, I'm not coming out. Boom. About 1 o'clock in the morning, one thirty in the morning, the police kick in the door. So they get inside the house. They find there's three kids, one age is six, one age four, and the two-year-old. Um, they say the home is a mess, piles of clothes scattered all over the floor. In the parents' bedroom, they find a shotgun next to the bed. Apparently, um, the children had been sick in their bed. There's stains all over it. The house is, is like a mess. And then they take the kid into custody. They take him to the emergency room, make sure he gets treatment. And right now, that the kids are all in child protective services. This is getting a lot of attention because the parents are now saying that they are the victim, that the police... They kick in the door. They've got their guns drawn, all these things. They say this was incredibly this. They had no business coming into our house with guns drawn at 1.30 in the morning and taking our kids. We are victims. This is evil government overreach. How dare the police do this? Now, from the police's perspective, they're saying, hey, we're just following what we're told. We've got this court order saying there's an emergency situation. We're supposed to remove the child. We're just following the court orders, and that's what we did. And none of this would have happened if they would have let us in in the first place to check on the welfare of the two-year-old. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did the police go too far? Do you sympathize with the parents who were saying, well, who is the state? Who is the government? Who are the Child Protective Services people to tell us that, that we have to take our kids to the emergency room to have them checked out? Took them into urgent care. I got a thermometer afterwards. I think the fever broke. I think the kid was feeling better. Did the police go too far? 414-799-1620. I will tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
Glad to have you with us. I mean, by the way, I guess the way the story works out is after the, the two-year-old and the other kids are, are taken into protective custody, they, they take him to the emergency room. It turns out he doesn't have meningitis. But but nobody, the doctors didn't know that. Nobody knew that. And that's why they were they wanted the kid to go to the emergency room so doctors could check him out to make sure he didn't have a, a fatal disease. His fever was over 105 degrees. Let's start with Emily in Jackson. Emily, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Did the cops go too far? Uh, no, they didn't. I think the parents are in the wrong on this. That, I mean, if you didn't want your kid checked out, why in the first place are you taking them to the emergency room? And you're secondly, you're not abiding by the doctor's recommendations of, he has a 105 feeder. He needs to go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, the last part is, they would have not had to break in the door down at one thirty in the morning if they would have just opened the door the first time and right. said, yeah, here he is. He's fine. R- right. The fever's broken or, or whatever. Yeah. Now, at the same time, let me ask you this. Uh, the doctor says he needs to go to the emergency room. The mom and dad, it's the, the two-year-old ultimately is their responsibility. Should they have yeah. the right to say, no, we're, we, we disagree. We're, we're going to watch him. We appreciate this, but you know, we, we want to ride this out. You know, I, I bought a thermometer. I think his temperature's going down a little. Should they have the right to do that? I, I guess they do, but she should have said that then right in the urgent care instead of saying, okay, instead of saying, well, yes, I don't want to get there. I don't want to be questioned on the vaccine. Right. If you can, if you can assure me of that, I'll go. She kind of went back on her word. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, um, she's just, I, I just think she was in the, they're both in the wrong. It's not the cop. Well, right. Well, right. Because I mean, I guess the flip side of this is now all's well that ends well because the, the child recovered. But I guess the, you know, how, how do people? How would people feel about this if the police had had done nothing, and then it turns out that the child does have meningitis and the child's dead by the next morning, and and the mother didn't take him in? Then you know what what's going to happen to the emergency? What's going to happen to the urgent care doc? What's going to happen to child protective services? What's going to happen to the police who who didn't do that investigation make yeah. that lawsuit from all the lawyers and then the parents are going to be seeing the cops and the doctors saying you should have tested our kids and blah and it's a whole other domino effect too right the, i mean the public outrage no thanks to call okay now here's a different perspective another here's my text jeff what a mess but the rookie doc in the box overreacted in the end the parents were right and everyone else was wrong the child did not have meningitis that's correct and would have endured a needless spinal tap on top of 105 fever in you and i could kill us but in two-year-olds two-year-olds can easily spike to 106 or more it's how their bodies fight the infection Bottom line is the parents' rights were trampled on. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, Russell in Brookfield. Russell, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Glad you're back. Thank you. Um, So uh, I think that parents were totally wrong in this in every way. As the brother of two uh, brothers, myself, who died as young children because of poor care in one one point, uh, my parents... I think these parents were totally wrong in not taking him to the hospital immediately. And as far as blaming somebody else, this is typical of people like that. They always want to look outward. They, I always use the phrase, they never have a mirror. They never look to see what the problem is, which is them. Well, so, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I, I yeah. have children. I wouldn't have dreamed of not taking them to the doctor. Well, well right. I mean, I guess, see, that's that's the thing. When 
when when you have the doctor who says, look, th- this child may have a life-threatening situation. You've brought him in. It's 105 degree. He's got 105 degree fever, and it might turn out to be nothing. But on the other hand, I'm I'm worried this is meningitis, in which case this child could be presumably you know dead by morning. You, you've you've got to take him to a place that can run a couple tests so we can determine this one way or the other. And then the mom essentially re- refuses, and then the dad refuses, and they don't cooperate, and they don't open the door, so they don't let the police, who've been told that they have to come out and perform a welfare check, you know, maybe if they had opened the door, it, it wouldn't have been net. Well, you know, if they had opened the door and allowed the police to investigate this, and the kid's temperature had in fact broken, and maybe it's back to normal or whatever, well, then everybody goes home happy. But when you say, "Okay, I'm I'm not going to do this," I've got this child who can't take care of themselves. You got a two-year-old child that can't make that decision himself. This isn't even like it's a twelve-year-old who's making the decision. I don't want to have treatment, and the parents give that blessing. This is a two-year-old who can't decide for themselves. I, I just and the parents refuse to cooperate. I I don't know what the police could have done. I mean, at this point in time, now if you want to argue that the doctor shouldn't have called Child Protective Services, if you want to argue that Child Protective Services shouldn't have get involved, maybe. But again, think of the flip side. Child Protective Services gets this call from a doctor who says a kid's got 105 fever. I'm concerned it's meningitis. The mother, after telling me she was going to go to the emergency room, now hasn't done that. All right, you know, what, what is Child Protective Services supposed to do? Because if they don't get involved in this thing, well, and the kid ends up dead, then you've got a heck of a mess on your hand. 414-799-1620. Jason in McGuanago. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I, I definitely say you hit the nail right on the head. You have to. It's a two-year-old child. It's different if it's a, an adult that can say, no, I'm refusing care. But a two-year-old doesn't have that opportunity. It kind of reminds me of a story from about 10 years ago from the Northwoods where they said, oh, we're going to pray over the child. I think it had leukemia. Oh, we're just going to pray over it. We're just going to pray over it, and the child ended up dying. Yeah, it was di- yeah, it was diabetes. Yeah, as I recall, it was diabetes. It was something it that been. was that was, but it was something that was treatable. And if you had taken yeah. the child in, and the child had, and the kid had gotten the you know reasonable care that people get, that the child survives. But because no, as I recall, that the child goes into a diabetic coma. So you don't think the cops went too far in this? Absolutely, they had, no, they had to. They had to. They had to protect the two-year-old child. That's what we do in a civilized society. We protect children. If the parents aren't there to protect them, we as a community step in and protect them. Right. They uh, had to. Yeah, they no. had to kick down the door. They had to get the child. They had to make sure the child was okay. I see, and I, I agree with you. And then some people are making a big deal. Well, they, they drew their guns out. Well, okay, this is, I mean, the police have procedures. If you're making a forced entry into a residence, you know, there, there are things you do from a police officer perspective to protect yourself because you don't know what, what you're going to find when you come in here. Now, I mean, these are these are the parents from you know where. I mean, there's no question about it. There's all sorts of other examples of neglect. Like I say, the place is filthy and it's a mess, and the kids have apparently thrown up in their bed and that hasn't been cleaned up and things like that. But but that's not the basis to kick in the door. What is the basis to kick in the door is it's one thirty in the morning and. There is a concern based on what a doctor had seen that the child, you know, might have meningitis. And I guess I'm reading this and I understand you kind of think, okay, are there different ways that this could have been handled? But at the end of the day, if the mother does what I think most people would do, which is take the child to the emergency room, this whole thing goes away. If 
you know, after you get repeated calls, if the mother is saying, hey, I bought this thermometer, it looks like his fever is breaking, okay, well, then then maybe you, you go back to the urgent care doctor and you say, look, it, it's not 105 anymore. It's down to 101 and it's dropping. He, he looks like he's healthy. It looks like this is just kind of like burst. Okay, well, then maybe the urgency goes around, away. But as far as people thinking it's you know government overreach, we do have child protection laws on, on the books. And the reason we have those child protection laws on the books is because Children, two-year-old kids in this particular case, they can't, as our last caller was making the point, they can't make these decisions. And I do I do I support as a general rule police, you know, booting down doors and taking kids out of people's custody? No, I don't. But at the same time, when you see parents who are behaving in a way that I, I think it would be fair to describe as irrational. And this is sort of an irrational situation. Gee, I'm all paranoid about this vaccination thing. Otherwise, I take my child to the emergency room to determine whether or not he really does have this fatal illness or not. But I'd rather kind of ride this out because otherwise I, I might get called on the vaccination stuff. And some people are portraying this as the war on, again, anti-vaxxers and things like that. I don't see it like that. I see it as Child Protective Services concerned that parents aren't doing what I think you would expect expect reasonable parents to do. All right, when we come back in a few minutes, we're going to talk to the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. I have a number of questions. It has been an interesting week. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. We are joined now by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson. Senator, good afternoon. Oh, Jeff, how are you doing? I, I am well. A lot of stuff to talk about. It, it's, it seems... Amazing, but it was only a week ago that the the Mueller report was apparently finally finished. Um, what what is your reaction to the Mueller report and to well all the discussion after this? Should it be released? When should it be released? Should the Attorney General be called to testify in front of committees? What's your general reaction? Well, first of all, I think every American should be happy that there was no evidence whatsoever that the Trump campaign or President Trump engage in any kind of collusion with Russia. You know, obviously, Russia interfered. Uh, and I think the question right now is, you know, what was happening during the election, in the transition, in the early months of the Trump administration, uh, inside the FBI, inside the Department of Justice, inside our intelligence community? What, what level of sabotage was occurring within those agencies, uh, basically leading up to and then starting the day after the election? So I think those those are answers that I'm hoping will be contained in the Mueller report. I know the Senate Intelligence Committee is going to start writing their reports. It'll take a few months. Uh, the Inspector General has a couple reports due on potential FISA court abuse, uh, FBI leaking. So there's, there's an awful lot of information yet to come out. But uh, what I would like to do is move on. We have enormous challenges facing this nation. This has been a huge distraction. And what, what, you know, one of the questions I have is, you know, at what point did Robert Mueller realize there was no collusion? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to the Valerie Plain uh, special counsel or independent counsel, whatever that was back then. Within a couple of days, uh, that special counsel knew there was uh, Richard Armitage, and yet the investigation continued, caught uh, Scooty, Scooter Libby up in that, uh, had him plead guilty. Uh, again, there, there can be some real abuse of power here. So I, I think that's the, the other part of the story that needs to be told, and I think the American public needs to 
understand exactly what happened there. Senator, some people are, are concerned with the Attorney General's summary conclusion that, for, forgetting the conspiracy with Russia, but the whole idea of, of obstruction of justice, and the Attorney General in a very summary fashion, said there's no basis we're not bringing obstruction of justice charges. Do you think this is an avenue that needs to be pursued, or have we beaten this horse to death? Well, when there's no underlying crime, I know technically you can still obstruct justice, but uh, I think the Attorney General said it's pretty hard to actually prove the case on obstruction when there's there, there's no crime to really obstruct the justice uh, on. So, again, I, I, I will wait to see what the Mueller report says we'll see what these other reports say but as the chairman of the senate oversight committee i'll be working with lindsey graham to answer these other questions as well do you think the entire Mueller report should be released to the general public well you know the attorney general will follow the law and this special counsel is being guided by other laws you have to respect the confidentiality of uh, of uh, grand jury testimony you, you, you do understand that within the department of justice when your investigator is American. If, if, if there's no indictment, that should remain completely confidential. Otherwise, you ruin people's reputation. So there may be classified information on that as well. So I think it's incredibly irresponsible for members of Congress demanding this thing be you know, just opened up to the public within a matter of days. That's grossly irresponsible, and there's really good reasons why some of that information would never see the light of day. Yeah, Senator, I'm really glad to hear you say that because as somebody who used to run grand jury investigations, I mean, what I was always taught as a starting out as a federal prosecutor was the government speaks through the indictments that it returns. And if you're investigating and you do an investigation and you believe there's criminal evidence, that you, the grand jury returns an indictment and then you go ahead and prosecute. But for there are grand jury secrecy rules and for cases where there's not a basis to prosecute, you, you don't have grand jury in, in the mine run case. You don't have grand jury testimony just being released willy nilly because there are laws that govern the secrecy. And it's in many respects just fundamentally not fair to people to bring forth allegations against them if the government decides there's not a basis for issuing criminal charges. Yeah, again, people should personalize it and ask yourself the question if you're being investigated under false charges, do you, do you want that made public? Of course not, you know, particularly when they're false charges. So that's why we have these rules, and I'm sure Attorney General Barr will follow those rules, and he should. Um, Senator, let, let me let me switch gears. I think, and I think you and I have discussed this both, you know, privately and on the air. I think one, if you look at some of the stuff that happened during the last election, I think one of the issues that caught a number of Republican candidates, both in Wisconsin and nationwide, sort of flat-footed, was a failure to respond to to allegations or concerns that, hey, Republicans want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, but they don't want to deal with pre-existing conditions and things like that. When the Republicans controlled both the Senate and the, the House of Representatives, they weren't able to come to a consensus for, for meaningful health care reform. Now I see the president wants to talk again about health care reform. What should happen in this regard moving forward? Well, the big line of the 2018 campaign is that uh, Republicans want to take away your protection for any kind of pre-existing condition. And trust me, I was there. I was trying to actually protect people with pre-existing conditions, but do it in a way where premiums were double, triple, and quadruple. Uh, but people, you know, my colleagues didn't want to touch around the 10-foot pole because they realized the American people had spoken. That is something that is basically going to be protected. 
But again, the faulty architecture of Obamacare is that we're asking a very small slice of the American population, those individuals who buy their insurance on individual markets with after-tax dollars and other gross inequity, we are asking those people, we're forcing them to bear the full burden of covering everybody with pre-existing conditions. It's grossly unfair. The way to do it is spread that cost over everybody. That's what Maine's invisible high-risk pool did when they passed guaranteed issue by Using that invisible high-risk pool, they brought premiums down for young people to a third of the, of the level, uh, otherwise, and, and to cut in half for, for the elderly. So there's a way of doing this, but uh, no, absolutely, Republicans are going to maintain that protection. They were absolutely going to maintain uh, uh, 26-year-olds on your parents' policies. I mean, th- those things, first of all, that doesn't cost much money, uh, but the American people spoke on that. It's a, it's a matter of how do we do it without having premiums remain as sky high as they currently are because of the faulty architecture of Obamacare. Senator, given where we are politically, you have the Democrats that control the House of Representatives, you have the Republicans that control the Senate, you have President Trump in, in the White House. Do you think over the course of the next two years, moving into the next election cycle, that there's going to be any meaningful and realistic shot at, at any more health care reform? Or is it pretty much this, this is what it is right now? I hope so. Listen, I'm already talking to Democrat colleagues. I'm talking to my Republican colleagues. Uh, I intend to use my committee to solve a problem. So you gather the information, you define the problem, you do root cause analysis, set an achievable goal, then design a solution. So I think when it comes to pre-existing conditions, I already, already talked about invisible high-risk pools. We'll, we'll take a look at that. When it comes to drugs, price transparency is important. I think the patent abuse is one of the things that uh, really drives up drug costs, uh, you know, keeping people off, gene- off or drugs off the generic uh, schedule. So I think there are a number of things we can hopefully find agreement with our Democratic colleagues. And, you know, they've always been talking about let's, let's you know, mend it, not end it. Okay, well, let's start fixing some of these things. Uh, I think that's what we are, you know, it's our responsibility to do that. I think that's what President Trump wants to do. So hopefully, you know, we can convince the American public to put pressure on Democrats to work with us to uh, to solve some of these problems. Senator, earlier this morning, the president sent out a tweet saying that unless Mexico immediately and completely ends all illegal immigration into the United States, he plans to close down the border or large sections of the border next week. Your reaction? Well, I'm not sure how he does that. Uh, it wasn't, this is something I've really thrown myself into in terms of studying this problem. It's incredibly complex. The fact of the matter is we have virtual open borders for anybody coming into this country from Central America as part of a family with a child or as an unaccompanied child. Uh, in the first five months of 2000, fiscal year 2018, about 1,200 people came to this country daily illegally and were apprehended. The first five months of this year, it's been over 2,000 in the last couple of weeks, we've had days of over 4,000. I, I heard Jay Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security under Obama, saying that 1,000 people a day was a really bad day under his watch. We're up to 4,000. It's completely overwhelmed the system. And so what, what has happened is our law enforcement, and, and these are these, this is not because of their fault. It's because of our loopholes, our crazy legal system. That They are no more than a mere speed bump on the path to long-term occupancy of unaccompanied children and people coming to this country as family units from Central America. So we have to fix those laws. Mm-hmm. It's the number one thing we have to do. We have to fix the laws so we can apprehend people that do not have valid asylum claims and probably 
80 to 90 percent of people don't have a valid asylum claim so we can apprehend them, process their claim, and return them immediately, there has to be a consequence. Right now, the consequence is once you get here, you stay, and so that is just fueling an explosion of more people coming in from Central America, and, and we can't handle it. We, we can't assimilate that many people in such a short period of time, so we have to fix this problem. At the same time, I, I, I guess I want to go back to what you said at the beginning. I mean, how practical or how realistic is it to say we're going to close the entire border so no no, no goods are going to be flowing back and forth? I mean, I just, I'm having trouble seeing how that's practical. I don't think it is practical. So, again, what, what, what I'm trying to focus on is, is problems we can actually solve. You know, Michael Chertoff, when we had an inflow of Brazilians in 2005, you know, small compared to our current problem, but 31,000 came in here one year because they could enter Mexico visa-free and then came in through our southern border. He, he initiated expedited removal, an operation called Texas Hold'em, apprehended them, sent them right back to Brazil. The next year, 1,400 people came. So we know how to do this. Even Obama started detaining families, returning them. And so from 2014, when 120,000 people came in, that number dropped dramatically. But then he was taken to court. Uh, the Flores Agreement was applied to accompanied children. And we see the results now. 200,000 people have come into this country in the first six months as unaccompanied children or as family members. And in 2014, that number was 120,000. And President Obama correctly called that a humanitarian crisis. What, what would you call it now when you hit 200,000 in half a year? Now, this is a growing crisis. It's growing almost exponentially. And the fact that Democrats say this is manufactured, I mean, they've got their heads so far in the sand. I, I don't know how to really deal with them. Senator, before I let you go, I, I want to. I want to talk about one other foreign policy issue that's kind of under the radar screen, except I happen to know some people who live very, very close to Venezuela. What, what is going on in Venezuela, and, and what should the U.S.'s response be? Today, um, one of President Trump's advisors started talking about Russia and their military presence in, in Venezuela. Does the United States need to get involved more directly? Well, we are involved in terms of sanctions and getting the rest of the world, basically, other than the bad actors like Russia, like Cuba, like Iran, that are, are really propping up the Maduro regime. And it's a, it's a corrupt regime. It's murdering its own peoples. It's, it's starving them. It's certainly proof positive that socialism doesn't work. So we are trying to ramp up the pressure, deny them access to foreign currency so that Maduro can't pay off his generals. But right now, his generals, the people really protecting him are Cuban. And so there, there's a lot of corruption there. I think we need to maintain that pressure. Uh, I, I don't think we have to get militarily involved, but uh, we, we certainly need to make sure we protect any, any American. And, and uh, we, we have to be ready for just about anything, quite honestly. But, but hopefully Maduro uh, will be overthrown by uh, his own military. And, uh, you know, Guaido will be, uh, you know, he is the legitimate leader right now. But, Jeff, one thing I have to say before before I run out of time is mm -hmm. I'm asking all of your listeners, get out and vote for Judge Hagedorn. This is a crucial late race. He's a good person, a man of faith. We can't let the left defeat him because of that uh, religious litmus test. This is a crucial seat for uh, on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. We need every Republican, every conservative getting out and voting before uh, April 2nd. And, of course, today is the last day for early voting throughout most of the state, except for the city of Milwaukee, and the election day is, is Tuesday. Um, so that's when the Supreme Court race is on the ballot. Uh, Senator Johnson, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. I appreciate your time.
Have a great day. Absolutely. That's Senator Ron Johnson talking about a number of things back in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I want to dovetail on something that Senator Johnson was saying at the very end of the interview. There is an election coming up on Tuesday. And and I think for many people, it's probably an election coming up on Tuesday. Yes, there is a statewide election to choose the next justice on the state Supreme Court. These are 10-year terms. Justice Shirley Abramson, who is viewed as a, as a liberal lion, she is retiring after decades on the bench. So this is a liberal seat. Um, the liberal candidate is Lisa Neubauer. Now, again, it's, it's a nonpartisan type of thing, but the, the reality is she is the liberal candidate big ties over her career and family-wise to the Democratic Party of the state of Wisconsin. She is the liberal candidate. She's being backed by over a million dollars in spending by outside liberal groups who want to try to get her elected. The conservative candidate is Brian Hagedorn. Um, He was appointed by Governor Walker to the appellate court bench out in Waukesha. He was an attorney for Governor Walker for a number of years. He is a solid conservative. He has been attacked viciously during this campaign based on the fact that he is an evangelical Christian and based on the fact that, you know, he has engaged in legal writings and things, you know, consistent with his religious beliefs, which he has always made a point to separate his personal religious beliefs from his rulings on the bench. And I I always try to make that point to people. You know, for example, let's take the whole issue of sexual orientation. The Supreme Court of the United States says that people... Um, saying you can have same-sex marriages. They say that is legal, and, and that's fine. Now, that doesn't change the fact, for example, that there are a number of mainstream religions who say, and the religious teaching is, that marriage is between a man and a woman. All right, now, that's what the religion teaches. The law says that, all right, you know, you can have same-sex couples. And Judge Haggardon has always been, I think, very clear to say, yeah, this is what my religion teaches. And, and this is this is what we do in our personal life. But in my public life, you know, I end up following the law. And I, I think, you know, he's been attacked. And I think a lot of the attacks have come, again, based on his views of Christianity and the teachings of the churches that he belongs to. And I think that's been grossly unfair. Now, for the longest time, you had all this outside spending by these liberal groups who've tried to essentially paint Judge Hagedorn with a particular brush. Now, at the end of the campaign, you have a lot of money that's coming in from the conservative side. I think that's because people are starting to realize that this is, number one, an important race, and number two, it's a race that maybe is closer than people thought. I think the mainstream media said, well, the liberals have been winning these elections lately in Wisconsin. This will be a walkover for Neubauer. Um, Maybe not. Maybe not, but it is an important race. Um, Again, if you look at what happens, you've got a conservative, Republican-controlled legislature, at least we've had one, passed a number of laws. The laws inevitably get challenged by the losing side in Dane County. The Dane County circuit judges tend to be much more liberal than the balance of the state. And then ultimately what happens is the Supreme Court decides the liberals in this state Badly, 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 badly want to take control of the state Supreme Court. They hope to do it by winning this election next Tuesday and then by the election um, a year from now. 
whether or not they're able to succeed, well, that plan kind of goes, you know, just just goes down the drain if Judge Hagedorn wins on Tuesday. It is an important election. It will be a low turnout election, and it's important for people to get out and vote. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right, here's the story. The woman's name is Mary Ann White. She is a self-described Catholic mother of four sons. She was apparently attending mass at the University of Notre Dame last fall. She saw this situation, was horrified. She wrote a letter to the um, Notre Dame student newspaper. It's called The Observer. The letter was published earlier this week. It has created a huge controversy. Let me share a portion of it with you. This is what she wrote. She said, I attended, attended Mass, and while I was there, a group of young women, all clad in clingy spandex and short tops, were sitting directly in front of her and her family. I thought of, this is what she writes, I thought of all the other men around and behind us who couldn't help but see their behinds, right? My sons know better than to ogle a woman's body, certainly when I'm around, but hopefully also when I'm not. They didn't stare and they didn't comment afterwards, but you couldn't help see, you couldn't help but see those um, blackly naked rear ends. And she's talking about these were black spandex pants, these blackly naked rear ends. I didn't want to see them, but they were unavoidable. How much more difficult is it for young guys to ignore them? She then went on to beg female students to think of the mothers of sons the next time you go shopping and consider choosing jeans instead. Um, She went on to say that she hoped leggings would eventually go out of style, but maybe Notre Dame women, women could start a trend by simply choosing not to wear these stretchy types of of pants um college campuses as a general rule are are pretty much th- this is this is from what i understand a, you know a, a haven this is where it is a common thing for young women on college campuses to you know wear lycra or spandex bottoms to class to meals to campus activities so this is clearly the fashion trend this mom was outraged by this now predictably or, you know, if her idea was to get people to maybe rethink the idea of wearing these type of, like, leggings, if that was her idea, this this badly backfired, because as soon as this was published, there was a huge, you know, huge, you know, hue and cry about this, with people saying, well, this is just contributing to, you know, the, the, the idea of the rape culture, that it's, you know, it's it's women's fault if they're, you know, women are being blamed for dressing suggestively. These things are comfortable. Who should care? And if somebody stares, it's that person's problem. And and essentially, the lady was kind of like shouted down. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's my question. Does she raise a legitimate point, or is this... Is this really just kind of a hopelessly out-of-touch mother who needs to get out more when she, when she suggests that, you know, maybe young women should make a different fashion choice? You know, she says, look, I, my, my kids, they, they didn't say anything about this, but I'm right behind this, and it's almost impossible not to stare. All right. Does she make a legitimate point, or, again, is she just kind of out-of-touch? Is this... 
lady, you know, the 1950s are calling, um, you know, and, and they want their dress code back. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. And by the way, I would be particularly interested in female perspective on this. I'll talk to guys, too. But I'm particularly interested in female perspective. This is a fashion choice. This one mother of four, she's sitting in mass at Notre Dame in the Notre Dame Cathedral, and she's appalled. She's appalled by the way some of the young women are dressed. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is going to be an interesting conversation. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Sherry in Mequon. Sherry, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Sherry. I totally agree with that lady. There is a time and a place to wear those pants. And it isn't to church or to temple. It isn't to a dinner, fancy dinner. And it's not just the young ones that are wearing them. There are grandmas. I mean, I go to... Okay. I'm I'm sitting at the window waiting to give him my prescription. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay. And and this this got you so worked up that you you filed that you you called the show. Well, I appreciate that. Okay. So so you get you get it. You're on the you're on the mom side here. You think that it's just inappropriate. I think at times they are definitely. I don't know where was she sitting in. She was in church. Yeah, she was she was in church on the University of Notre Dame campus with her kids. Yeah. Definitely. That's wrong. Okay, good enough. Thanks. All right, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just cut you off there, Sherry, but give the give the guy your prescription. Okay, 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a moment, but I'm I'm curious. I mean, the she says, hey, I, I'm, I'm sitting there. We're at church. There's four young ladies in front of us, and they're wearing, like, cropped-up tops, and they're wearing these, these Lycra stretch pants, and my impression is they leave very little to the imagination, and she's saying, I just I, – I, I just, she says, I just, I have an issue with this. And of course, now she's getting a lot of static on, on the internet. People saying, oh, you know, you know, young women should be able to wear whatever they want. And again, my example was the 50s called and they want their dress code back. 414-799-1620. Sharon in Waukesha. Sharon, good afternoon. Yes. Um, I called to take and say I'm on the side of the mom, I believe, having grown up in the 70s, knowing what it was like then. And now being a mom of a son and daughters. You watch how young men act, and I think it's hard for them to deal with that. Um, well, okay, let's really- let's talk about that, because I, I am a child of the 70s as well, and I remember <laughs> in high school in particular, the style back then was like these micro mini skirts. And I can uh-huh. wear I can wear a number I can remember a number of my female high school classmates who would come to school in these really, really short miniskirts to the point that, you know, I don't understand how women sat down. <laughs> I just, I, 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 I just don't. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, that, that was, you know, for a guy with like raging hormones. I mean, that was a bit of a distraction and stuff, but you know, we, we kind of got through it. Are, are these worse than those, those miniskirts that gals wore when we were growing up? I think they're pretty comparable. Mm-hmm. I just, I remember being the girl wearing them. And now I know the mom that I watched my son and my daughters and how men look at them. Right. And I think, okay, yes, I know they want to be young and enjoy, you know, being young, but I don't think they realize how difficult. And I think we all have a responsibility to control ourselves, but I just think it, we need to be appropriate. Okay. And you just think this is, you just think they, they, 
again, at least the way this lady describes the leggings like she saw them, you think it kind of goes too far. It does, especially in church, yeah, well, <laughs> or, or you know, or in a in a place that you need to be dressed more appropriately. Well, it, so. it's funny that you you mention church because it's um, I, I wouldn't see I I wear blue jeans pretty much everywhere. I I can't make myself wear blue jeans to church, and other people do wear blue jeans to church. I still can't do it. I just think my late mother would come back and haunt me, and she'd say, "Jeff, didn't I raise you better than that?" It's so it's 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 got to be at least dress pants. I mean, I, I'm not saying I wear suits and stuff. Stuff, but it's got to be dress pants. Now, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. And again, when I was hearing this leggings conversation, again, maybe if you're a certain age, you have no idea what I'm discussing when I say these micro miniskirts. But in the 60s and 70s, this, this, I mean, this was the thing. And you had, you had young gals who were wearing these really, 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 really short skirts. In some cases, you, you could argue that they were kind of like a glorified belt. But that was the style that, that was in. 414-799-1620. Janice in West Dallas. Good afternoon. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I think some of the issue is the length of the shirts that they're wearing. They're not wearing the long shirt. Right. Right. And what I want to know is what's the difference between leggings and tights? Yeah, well, I get this. I I think this lady is using this kind of um, kind of interchangeably. You know, we're like the the lycra or those spandex, you know, bottoms and stuff. Now, in this case, talking about your point on the tights, I get the idea that they also had like kind of. It wasn't like they were wearing long shirts like our our news person Melissa was talking about. They were they were kind of like in in crop top things and stuff like yeah. that. So no, no, you've got to have three quarters of it covered. <laughs> Okay. It, okay. So you you don't necessarily fault the mom for for saying, "Gee, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I just think it's it, it's inappropriate." You don't think she was out of line? Oh, I do. If the shirt was the right length, it would have been okay. Right. 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 Got it. Okay. Thanks for call four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to um. Let's see, Charlotte in Beaver Dam. Charlotte, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I am well, thank um, you. Was this mom out of line? Pardon? Was the mom out of line? I think so. I think she's missing the point. Um, one, they're so worried about what other people are allowing their children to wear that they're missing the point that these young people are in church. Yeah. They're actually in the pews listening to the Gospels. If you look at the congregations these days, and I'm a Catholic, that when you look around... There are no young people in the pews. Right. These kids show up on Sunday. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't think God cares what they're wearing as long as they're there. That's what really matters. That's. I guess that that's. And I understand what you're saying. That is kind of an interesting thing. Are there? Should there be any sort of dress code at church, though? I mean, I think you know. Obviously, everybody's more casual nowadays. That's just the. That's the reality. But um, is well. You know, I I'm, ride a motorcycle okay. mostly during the summer months. I walk into whatever church is closest to where I am ride my bike is parked with full leathers on. I right. don't think God has a problem with that. Now, if these are young kids going to Notre Dame, you've got to keep in mind how much money do they have to spend on Sunday clothes? Mm-hmm. You know, should there be a dress code? You know, there used to be. Everybody put on their Sunday best. 
Right. Uh, the well, well, let me let, let me shift relaxed. it a little bit. Let I I think the lady was trying to make even bigger point than just in 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 church. Let let's. I think her bigger point was that these leggings are these really really tight things and the cropped off tops where they're they're walking around. They're essentially semi exposing themselves, and, and it, I think even beyond church, it was the whole fashion style. Do you have a problem with the leggings? I don't have problems with leggings, and I also grew up in the 70s. How about the hip-hugger jeans and halter tops? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Yep, 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 yep. It, I... just, it just goes with different material and different fashion, but it's all the same. Right. The midriff is being exposed. The arms are being exposed. You know, uh, the cut-off Daisy Duke shorts. Yep. You know, it's. It's the fashion trend. And to some degree, you have to look at it and say, thank God that's not my kid. <laughs> right. Oh, and, you know? and also, this too will pass, you know, if you think about the different fashion trends right. that people had. All right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let me take a quick break. Then we'll be back with a couple more calls. Uh, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner. My, my producer, Gru, thinks this is uh, thinks it's generational. You think any anybody under 30... No male or female has no problem with this. Over 30, the, the leggings uh, might be a different concern. Sandy in Waukesha. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sandy. It absolutely is generational. Okay. It's absolutely right. 150 years ago, if you showed your ankle or your wrist, <laughs> you are a, a wanton woman. Right. You had to put that scarlet A on your on your forehead, oh, huh? My <laughs> land. And to, when I went to high school, we kneeled on the floor to make sure our skirts touched the floor because <laughs> if they didn't, it was too short. Right, right, right. It is. It's absolutely generational. Every generation has fought with this for at least 200 years. Right. So I think we just have to smile and say, thank goodness they were in church. Well, right, and that, which is, of course, the, the bottom line of all this. Um, no, thanks for the call. And, and see, that that, that, that is... It, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like this kind of old dinosaur on this thing. I understand what the mom was saying. I guess I I don't have problems with leggings per se. I, I, I don't. I mean, I think it's a fashion statement. Like I say, I, I grew up when I, I remember, you know, the and this is when I'm just like one giant raging hormone. I remember the girls with the, like the, the really, really short skirts. And, and candidly, that left less than the, to the imagination than I think most of the leggings that you see here. So I, I remember that. At the same time, I, I do think, I mean, regardless of what you're wearing, it, it needs to be, I think, somewhat appropriate for where you are. Let's talk to Monica in Brookfield. Monica, you're on WTMJ. Okay, I just heard you say um, as far as where people are located and what they're doing, and I completely agree with that. Um, I'm a mother that has four kids. Three of them are girls. They're grade school children. And I think leggings are super when they're playing sports and mm -hmm. when they're out running around. But I think there's lots of really nice clothing options out there for them to wear on their legs um, as opposed to just a nylon that looks like a tight. Right. Um, I think they could. there's pant pants and there's other thicker styles that are still slim fitting and knits that look appropriate and you can wear them in church you can wear them anywhere and they they look and feel just as good but right. they're not that really thin and as nylon. as your how, how old are your daughters 
Um, I have a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. My guess is as they get a little bit older, too, you're going to feel even more strongly <laughs> that way about yes, the leggings. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's yeah. what it sounds like. No, no I know. Thanks. I have it. Okay, well, I mean, I guess I, I, I would not ridicule this woman, I, this, this mom. I understand what she was, was trying to say. I, I'm not anti-legging, and I understand that it's this kind of fashion style. I'm more about, you know, I, would would I say that you know you know young women my my okay my my goddaughter my niece is a, she's a college uh, sophomore uh, and my guess is she and her friends you know wear leggings and walk across to go to the cafeteria and things like that would would I say that she shouldn't do that no I I I wouldn't at the same time I mean I do think you have to be at least a little bit mindful about you know whatever is appropriate wear for where it is that you're going and as far as distractions for boys well the, the, the bottom line is like I say boys are just like one giant hormone and I, I don't know that they're going to be any more distracted by the the leggings than they are going to just by I don't know just a, a pretty face or, or whatever so I, I just I, I don't I just I'm certainly not going to clothes shame the, the girls in this case and I do agree with some of the people who said at least they are in church live from the annex wealth management studios at historic radio city this is the jeff wagner show and now here's wtmj's jeff wagner so very glad to have you with us all right couple things to do before we hit pop culture corner at 235 beloit college getting a lot of attention i think it might be some attention that they don't want it's an interesting story eric prince you don't know who Eric Prince is, do you? Okay, Eric Prince is the founder. Uh, he's a former Navy SEAL, and he's he was the founder of this private security company called Blackwater, and it, it got Blackwater got a lot of attention back during the Iraq War, um, when what happened is Blackwater got a number of government contracts and um, to provide security. And, and so they were operating kind of in a sort of quasi-military sort of fashion. Um, Blackwater came under scrutiny back in 2007 when several Blackwater employees were involved in the shooting deaths of 14 civilians in Baghdad. This is during the Iraqi war. Um, since then, he, he's no longer involved with Blackwater, but he's his deal is – I don't know if it's fair to describe him as a mercenary. Some people do. But, you know, he he's going around. He's saying, okay, what we need to do is we need to have private security operations, and we should move those in and replace U.S. forces. So that's, that, that's who this guy is. Um, he is a controversial figure because he talks about controversial sort of ideas. Well, the other night at Beloit College, the college group of conservatives, Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, they've been around forever. But they invited this guy to, to speak. And so the deal was, here, we're, we're going to bring him in. We're going to pay him. And, you know, as part of the universities, you know, we're opening up the campus. So we're going to have him come on and speak. So the deal was he was supposed to speak in one of the, the lecture halls on campus the thing was supposed to start at 7:30 in the the after, in the evening all right this was a couple days ago so what happened is before the speech was to start you had about 200 protesters who showed up and they kind of bum rushed the, the room so they are they are in the room and they're shouting and they're banging on drums and things of, of the like all right then what they did is they started taking chairs and tables, and they started 
um, trying to pile the, the chairs. So they, they had all these they had all these chairs, like folding chairs and stuff that were set up in the lecture hall. And so what the the quote unquote protesters would do is that they they would take down the chairs that had been set up. And what they did is they like started piling them in this giant pile in front of the stage. So you know people couldn't sit down to attend this and then they were disruptive and they were banging on drums etc cetera, etc cetera. well because this is all going on uh security is kind of like watching this i'm looking at these pictures of this huge stack of chairs and tables that they were allowed to pile up by the stage and finally about 8:15 the one of the deans of students comes out and says okay um we're we're canceling this guy's appearance because of concerns we have about the safety of all participants. So in other words, you had this mob that descended on this speech. And because of their disruptions and because of what they did in piling up chairs, et cetera, et cetera, they ended up having to cancel the the speech. Uh, Beloit College, you know, denounces this. They say, as an institution of higher learning, open dialogue on all topics is one of our core principles. Tonight's events felt tonight's events felt unacceptably short of this core principle. We condemn the behavior of those who disrupted the event. Um, a number of the protesters are very proud of, of what they, they did, and they're proud of shutting this down. They say, well, we believe that this Young Americans for Freedom, the conservative group, we believe that their views represent only a small contingent of the population here. So, you know, fine, we, we're apparently we're happy with what we did. All right, here's what I think is the interesting aspect of this story, and it's what I wanted to spend just one segment talking to you about. This this speaker was approved by the university. He was paid for by the, this Young Americans for Freedom group. So this was a university-sanctioned thing. The reason it was sh- shut down was number one because you had you had the mob that acted in the fashion they did, and number two, it wasn't just the disruptions and the banging, the drums and the singing. It was okay. We're taking down all the chairs. We're piling them up, etc. Here's what I find to be interesting. As of today, and this happened a couple days ago, nobody has been arrested. Nobody was arrested that night. Nobody has been disciplined. So Beloit College comes out and they condemn this. But at the same time, they stood by and let it happen. And I guess as I'm looking at the story, the thing that kind of jumps out at me is, is, wait a minute. You have a campus scheduled approved event. Right, you've got security people that that are there, and you have this mob of people that that descends and starts being disruptive, starts taking down the chairs, starts piling up these chairs, and and you just let them do that, and and there's no consequence at all. Nobody arrested in the lecture hall, nobody held to account, like suspended or something afterwards. Our number four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean. T- to, to me, th- this is what is the mind-boggling thing about that. All right, there was security there, and the security apparently just stood by and, and watched these these kids do this. At some point in time, when you have a university-sponsored I- event, how do you just stand by 
and watch the protesters, watch the disrupt the disruptors, watch them take down the chairs and pile the chairs up. At some point in time, after the first kid does that, don't you say, don't do that again, or you're going to be arrested for disorderly conduct. And when the next kid does it, don't you haul them out and arrest them for disorderly conduct. Am I missing something here? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I, I guess I, I understand on the one hand, you don't want to take a situation and throw fire, you know, throw, you know, throw gasoline onto a fire. But at the same time, how can you let something like this go on? I mean, you know, you, you've got an event, you've got a scheduled speaker, you have the protesters that start taking down chairs and piling them up. Doesn't somebody come in and say, stop this? And if you don't stop it, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be arrested. Or alternatively, you know, we we know who's done this, and boom, you're expelled. Boom, you're expelled. 414-799-1620. I mean, I think this whole thing was shameful, but where is the role of university officials in trying to shut something like this down, stop the problem before it gets out of hand? We discuss in just a moment. 414-799-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner, Kevin in Brookfield. Kevin, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, i just wondering, why is it that conservatives across the nation at college campuses can be attacked? They can be shut down. You have the Ben Shapiro's, the Ann Coulter's. Yep. Uh, they can be screamed at. They can be, you had the, the conservative group out there in, uh, just recently where the guy was physically punched in the right. face and then falled up. Afterwards, punched again and then punched again, knocked to the ground. And the only reason, the only reason that they prosecuted him, because he hired an attorney to sue the campus police for not protecting him. And that's when they went after and arrested this guy who they knew. Yeah. Well, it's, why, it's, is, why is this? Well, it, well it, again, it, it is the incredible double standard. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, let's assume, okay, radical. Radical California professor Angela Davis. Angela Davis comes to Beloit College. You know, they set up the chairs. She's brought there. A a group of conservatives come in and try to shut the thing down and start piling up chairs in front of the stage. You know, as soon as as those first couple chairs came down, there would have been security in there. Those people would have been removed. They would probably have been arrested or at least cited for disorderly conduct. And and yet authorities let this guy out of control. Yeah. Yeah. And kicked out of school. They'd yeah. all been separated, kicked out of school, lost their scholarships. They'd have had their face plastered against Facebook, Instagram, whatever. They'd have been shamed. They'd have had their parents in the paper. The whole business, because that's what these cry bullies do. Well, right. No, thanks for calling. I mean, again, I guess that's the. I mean, that's the point. It, it is the double standard. And what struck me about the story is how could you let this get so out of control? You and, and from the perspective of the college, and yes, I do fault the college. It's fine for them to say after the fact, well, you know, we we denounced this. This was, you know, this was terrible. We promote free speech. Well, okay, you knew that something like this was going to be inevitable. You know, once you have, and I like your phrase, the cry bullies, once you have that going on, how can you let it get out of control like that? Now, I have a, a texter who I assume is just, disagreeing to be disagreeable but it's called protesting it's legal no protesting is legal all right um disorderly conduct is not you know going into a room that you did not rent and deciding i want to try to shut this down by taking down all the chairs and putting up chairs and tables to try to block things so there's no room for people to sit no that that's not that's not 
legal protesting, that's disorderly conduct. And that's what gets you tossed out of the room and it's what gets you cited for disorderly conduct. And you would think in a rational world, it might be what gets you suspended from school, isn't it? Ken and Racine. Ken, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. I agree with the previous caller. You know, these people that think they can take away the right to free speech need a punishment that has a little pain to a little sting to it so they stop doing that, or at least they think twice about it. Right. First of all, if they wanted to protest and stay outside the building and keep their hands off the people and keep their hands off the property, I don't have any issue with that at all. I agree. But the moment they got into that place, the police should have been called, and the, and the university or the college, rather, should have backed that call and then backed the police to have this crowd, which was, as I see it, a bunch of unruly thugs. Yeah, it's a mob. They should have been dispersed, and if they didn't want to disperse, then they are escalating it, and arrests should have been made. Now, I can understand where maybe the college doesn't want to have a full, blown-off fight on their hands or a riot, in which case I could live with the fact that somebody takes a video and then arrests and citations or both are made after the fact. Yeah, or alternatively, the college starts taking disciplinary action. Maybe you start expelling people. Maybe you start suspending people. Because, I mean, some of the people that did this, they're proud of it. I mean, they're they're giving interviews with, uh, what is it, the Beloit, <laughs> the Beloit News I'm looking at here. You know, they're, they're proud of what they did. They shut down this evil mercenary. Or, Isn't this great? Um, he's not representative of the views of the majority of people on campus. We shut him down. We're proud of it. Well, okay, why are those kids still in school? Yep. Uh, they need some heavy fines. Everybody understands economic sanctions, and they need some fines so that they'll think a little bit before they do this again. I, th- thanks for calling. And I mean, this is and the reason I bring this up is is again because I think this is one of these typical sort of things, and it is the way this is kind of the norm on college campus and and campuses. And it's, I, I mean, I remember back. And this is a little bit before my time, but a lot of times you hear about the free speech movement and it, you know, it started in California, it started at the University of California, Berkeley, and the whole idea was, you know, students should be free to express themselves and, and wade in on issues of the day and things like that. And, and think of how we've gone through the looking glass now, where now, especially on college campuses, if you want to present a view that's that's counter to the, the currently the politically correct ideology, and you want to have speakers that might are going to might be challenging that. Well, even at places like you know Beloit College, you can't do it because you're going to have the mob that's going to sit there and dissent, and, and they're going to do whatever they can to not just shout down but shut up that point of view that they don't like. Isn't it interesting how we, we've just seen a kind of complete role reversal? This isn't universities, you know, trying to stop the students from expressing their opinions. This is now students trying to stop other students from at least presenting ideas that might be counter to the current ideology. Kind of scary here. Uh, here's a text. Jeff, there are no consequences, and they let the protesters run wild. I think this is going to continue happening until someone holds the schools financially accountable for violating civil liberties. These protesters are anything but civil. I would try to hit the school in their wallet. Well, if I were the school, I would start with going after the protesters. And saying, look, if you can't behave, that's fine. But there are going to be consequences. This is Jeff Wagner.
It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 414-799-1620 to get on the show. And now, here's Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. One final time, this week's Home Improvement Showcase expert, Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, perfectly beautiful, and I do appreciate them. And by the way, this is the last week of our Home Improvement Spring Program. I want to say a special thank you to all the advertisers, many of whom have been with us for years and years and years, and I appreciate that quite a bit. Please go out and patronize them. Spring is a great time to look at making home improvements. All right. As the announcer man said, this is the portion of the week where we put aside the heavy lifting. I call the segment Pop Culture Corner. Sometimes we talk about movies, sometimes books, sometimes food, sometimes travel, uh, sometimes television, sometimes music, whatever happens to tickle my fancy in a given week. And this this week's sort of a no-brainer. This is one of my favorite times of year when it comes to sports. Now, my beautiful wife... I think she would tell you that I'm a pretty darn good husband without too many flaws, except she says it's the sports thing. You know, people will say, well, what, what, what is Jeff? What sort of sports does Jeff like? And she said, it's just anything that's on the television. Doesn't matter. He'll get up on Saturday mornings and watch English Premier League soccer. And he'll watch pro, he'll watch pro basketball. And he'll watch college basketball. And he'll go to Brewers games. <laughs> we're going out to dinner tonight, okay? And we're, we're meeting some friends at seven o'clock. And she says, what time's the Brewers game? Is it seven ten? She says, Oh, I said, don't don't worry. I said, I, you know, we we can we can go out to dinner. It'll it'll be fine. She said, oh, thank God, you know. So it's but if it's sports that are on, you know, my wife at least thinks that I I have to watch them. And don't even get me started about Packers football or anything like that. But for those of us who are sports junkies, this is a great time of year. You've got. College basketball that's still, you know, you've got the Sweet 16, you have the Elite 8 by Saturday. So you got college basketball, that season is winding down. You've got the pro basketball season is almost winding down, at least the regular season. Then you go into playoffs. I'm not particularly a hockey fan, but you got hockey that's getting ready to go into playoffs. If you're a soccer fan, okay, this is the wind-up of the soccer season over the next month or so. You've got the NFL draft that's coming up. I could go on and on. And, oh, by the way, you've got the start of the Major League Baseball season. Opening day yesterday, lots of people are excited. So the bottom line is, if you are a sports junkie, you are just in hog heaven. I mean, there's all that type of stuff going on. And it's almost, there's so many cool things, you don't know what you want to watch next or whatever. And you don't know what events you, you want to attend. Gee, do I do I want to go to the Brewers' home opener? Do I want to go to the Bucks game that night? Et cetera, et cetera. All this type of stuff is, is going on. Yesterday's home opener. Now, let's forget about the stuff that we, we did beforehand and all the cool interviews and things. It was a great ball game. Matter of fact, the Journal Sentinel has something up ranking the ranking the Brewers' opening days, not just home openers, but opening days, and they have yesterday's game as like the third best, most exciting, whatever, up home uh, opener in in Brewers baseball history. The Brewers have been around for what like fifty years now, or so. They think yesterday's was the third best opener, and yesterday's was a great game. Christian Yelich, the MVP, hits a three-run home run to dead center field. Mike Moustakis hits a home run. The pitcher, Yasin, I, 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 he hits the home run. He scores two runs. He scored more runs than any of the other players. I, I was watching the, the, the game from our seats, and 
You know, he struck out first, then he got a single and ended up scoring on Yelich's home run. It was amazing because the guy looked clueless at the plate. He kind of stuck the bat out. It was a single. And then he hits this home run, and that was a no-doubt home run. He got that bad boy. But it was it was just a great game. It's close. You you have Lorenzo Cain that has to make this great play at this center field wall to bring back what otherwise would have been a home run. It was just a great game. It was a tremendous game to be at. Which brings me to Pop Culture Corner. All right, sports fans, casual or intense, yesterday was a memorable game. If you attended it, my guess is 5, 10, 15 years from now, you will be talking about, particularly if the Brewers go on and have a great season, if you were one of the 45-plus thousand people that were there, you'll be talking about that great game back in 2019 when you had the pitcher that hit the home run and Christian Yelich who drilled the three-run home run. You will be discussing that. So 414-799-1620. All right. What is the most memorable sporting event that you have attended? And again, it could be football, it could be basketball, it could be baseball, auto racing, you name it. The most memorable sporting event that you have attended, the one that sticks in your mind the most. My guess is, if we do this topic 10 years from now, um, some people might remember yesterday's game. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe it was the outcome. Maybe it was something that happened during the game. I saw a no-hitter. I've never seen a no-hitter, as a matter of fact. What, whatever. Most memorable sporting event. Grew is lining up the calls we discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It's Pop Culture Corner, the most memorable sporting event you have attended. Here's our first one. Packers game against the Vikings ended in overtime by the Antonio Freeman catch. It happened right in front of us. That was Monday Night Football, November 6th, 2000, um, where Freeman caught the ball falling down. Nobody touched him. He got up and ran and scored the game-winning touchdown. The Packers beat the Vikings 26-20. to uh, let's see. Dan says, Pack, uh, da, 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 da. it's another one. Last year's opening Packers game against the Bears. Tremendous comeback. All right. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Tom and Hartland. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Your most memorable sporting event that you attended. Yes. We won Super Bowl tickets to the wrong Super Bowl. Okay. We, unfortunately, we went to the Bronco game. Yeah. Uh, as I said, we won the Super Bowl lottery. We went, myself and my brother, I think my dad was more proud that the two of us went than anything you could imagine. Right. And uh, one of the incredible things were, you don't realize it today, with cell phones being everywhere, but when you go to things like that, you get your little seat cushion. Right. And this side there was a, a ditty bag, and what they had, they had calling cards. Oh, and really? we got We got there early. And as you went through the, the ditty bag and pulled them out, you could just kind of watch around the stadium. And it was just a mass exit of the few people that were there and everybody. All of a sudden, there were lines at all the pay phones. Right, yeah, right pay phones. That's another thing. That was in, yep. okay, San Diego, right? That's, San Diego, Got correct. it. Okay, thanks for call. Yeah, the, the one they won was in uh, New Orleans. 414-799-1620. Margie in Waukesha. Margie, you're in WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. The most memorable sporting event you attended? It was actually the 82 uh, Indy 500. Rick Mears and Gordy Johncock. Tighten it out. Rick Mears was 10 seconds behind with 10 laps to go and kept pulling up and pulling up and ended up winning by, at that time, like one one hundredth of a second, which was 
at that time, the closest Indy 500 ever. Were you an auto racing fan, or were you just there because it was an event? No, uh, we were an auto racing fan, and we were going. Uh, that was actually the first year that we went, and I was hooked from then on. Okay. So we went on for about 10 years. <laughs> Very cool. Thanks for calling. The, um, I've, uh, I've never been to the Indy 500. Never been to the Indy 500. Let's talk to, um, let's see, let's talk to da, 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 Dawson in Oak Creek. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I recall vividly as a eight-year-old kid being at the 99 Milwaukee Wave World Championship game at the Bradley Center. Okay. Uh, I vividly remember Michael King doing a bicycle kick to score a goal. Okay. And just how, how raunchy and crazy the Bradley Center was, and it was sold out to the top, you know, and you barely see them selling out the cell now. So. Right, for, for indoor, right, for indoor soccer. And that, um, those were always fun games to, to go to. Uh, one of the former owners of the Wave was a, was a, an acquaintance of mine, uh, Charlie Krause. He passed away last year, I think. Um, but, um, I would go occasionally as his guest. And I, those, those were always fun games. No question about it. Yeah, they were very kid oriented too, and the tickets weren't much money, so it was it was nice. You know, my dad, and my brother would always go to as many as we could. Outstanding! Thanks to call the wave, Steve in Oak Creek. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It was uh, game one sixty three last year. Oh, in Chicago. Uh, in Chicago, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, my son's idea. He we had never been to Wrigley Field, so. Popped the train, went down there, and had a blast, and they won. Okay, what was it like? What was it like being a Brewers fan at Wrigley Field, Game One Sixty Three, with the Brewers winning? We there were thousands of us. It, it, it seemed like we okay. yelled louder than they did, and we were surrounding Cubs fans. And when we had a we got a run, we yelled, and when they got a run, they weren't too loud. And then coming out of the ballpark. Walking down the streets that are normally filled with happy Cubs fans, it was awfully quiet. It was a it was a great day to be a Brewers fan. Yeah, that's, they, they, I mean, yeah that, that's right on so many different levels. That was that was such a special season last year that you know my my head tells me it's going to be tough to repeat that, but my heart says, boy, I I sure. I sure hope they do. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Greg in Houstisford. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Most memorable sporting event you ever attended? Oh, February 18th, uh, 2001. I was right in turn three when Dale Earnhardt uh, hit the wall at Daytona and got killed. Did, did you know it was a fatal crash at the time it happened, or did you find that out later? I found it out in the, in the parking lot. We were drinking beer and waiting for the traffic to thin out. We yeah. uh, announced it over the radio. Oh, uh, have, uh, yeah. Thanks. For, you know, that's of course that's you know that's the risk that you run. You know, those guys, man, driving cars at two hundred plus miles an hour. You know, stuff like that can always happen. Carmen in Kilner. Carmen, you're on WTMJ. Hi. How are you, Carmen? Where are you calling from? Well, we're on um, Interstate 43 heading south towards West Bend. Okay, all right. Uh, got it. <laughs> got it. Okay, what's what's your most memorable sporting event? Uh, most memorable sporting event was the Rose Bowl after the 1994 football season. Right. Um, I was a senior in college, and my roommates and I drove out to L.A. We were on a budget, so we camped. <laughs> and uh, we went to the game, and it was it was amazing. That, yeah, and that I, for people who don't remember, 
That that was the first Rose Bowl they had been to in in decades, as I recall, right? Decades. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and we've been through the, the some some four seasons, and we've been through the uh, Camp Randall incident and the game in Tokyo, and celebrated on State Street, and then we loaded up a Chevy <laughs> Blazer and headed west. So it was great. Yeah, you know, see, it, it's interesting how you become spoiled. Like like Packers fans, the Packers have been so good most years since the early '90s that there's a whole generation, maybe two generation of Packers fans who don't remember what it was like in the you know the whole '80s and don't remember what it was like in most of the '70s. They're just used to success. Same thing true with Wisconsin fans because the Badgers have in general been so good since. Right. That right. then 1994, they forget how it was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we came in in the fall of 1990, and our and our friends uh, who were on the football team were talking about bowls, and we thought, "What are you What are you talking about going to a bowl?" <laughs> yeah. And the bowl, you know, four years later, there we were. So, and it had yeah. to be cool as a senior to be able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. Drive carefully, Rick in Sussex. Rick here on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. I said I got lucky enough to see three memorial memorable games. I saw the uh, Lakers' 33-game winning streak come to an end by the Bucks. Mm-hmm. I got to see the Lambeau Leap but originally at the Oakland game, which was colder than a son of a gun. <laughs> and I... Uh, Got to see Cooper with the hit, getting him into the World Series in '82. Yeah, that was. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think back on the different games that I was at. I, I was at the, I, I was at the Super Bowl in Dallas, where you know, with 2010, 2011, and that was very cool. But I got to tell you, I think if I had to pick one, it would be that game you just referred to, 1982. They come back, they win three games in a row to beat the California Angels and go to the World Series. And that Sunday game at County Stadium, Cecil Cooper getting the big hit. I, that's that's probably my most memorable sporting event, too. Oh, and the part I remember most is my father, who just passed away at 98 a month ago. He uh when Cooper was up, you really everybody was standing and he couldn't see him hit. So he turned around and was and we had the last seats in the box in the box seats right behind the Brewer dugout. Okay. And he turned around and watched everybody in the lower grand and he just he said it was just unbelievable watching everybody at one time leap and scream and you could not hear a sound except for a buzzing in your ears. Yeah. It that, was it was something special. That whole no, thanks for that whole weekend was incredible. The it just I mean cuz for people who forget back then it it was a five game series. You had there there weren't wild card teams or anything like that and it was a five game series. The Brewers were playing the California Angels. That's what they called them at the time. That might be what they call them now. Um and and they went on the road. They lost the first two games. Then they came back. I I remember this cuz I was living downtown at the time. I would have still been in law school, I think. And so I I had I had tickets through this lottery thing and I was taking the bus the city bus out to the game because they didn't have to fool with parking and there were all these angels fans on the buses and they were so darn cocky it was just like okay well we're going to win this one and the brewers won on friday they won on the saturday game it was a cold day and rain delay and then uh, they ended up winning that big game on sunday all sorts of things like that it's cool i'm sorry we got lots of other ones i didn't get to 1977 nba all-star game in milwaukee game six and seven of the 1985 world series one of the last packers games at County Stadium, um, all sorts of great ones that are out there. Bottom line is, 
It's one of the reasons why I love going to live sporting events, because you never know when you're going to see something spectacular. Yesterday could have been an ordinary game, but I go back to the way I started this. I think that there's going to be people, if I do this topic 10 years from now, I'm still doing a radio show 10 years from now, if I do this topic, there's people going to be calling in saying, hey, remember 2019 when Kristen Yelich hit the three-run home run and Lorenzo Cain made the play, catching, bringing that ball back and saving the game? People are going to remember that, and that is the cool thing about sports. You never know what's going to happen. Speaking of not knowing what's going to happen, Scott Warris. How's that for a segue? He's in in just a minute. Stick around.